This is a Federal News Network podcast. An elite task force has finished its look into the competitiveness of American manufacturing. Its findings start with the U.S. workforce, and it also has recommendations for the federal government. We get the highlights now from the director of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, Roger Zakheim. Mr. Zakheim, good to have you on. Thanks for having me on. And tell us the genesis of this committee. It wasn't congressionally appointed, but it had members of Congress on it. How did it come to be? Well, the Reagan Institute, promoting Ronald Reagan's legacy, focuses on peace through strength. We have a center with that name and looks at areas that are critical for advancing U.S. strength. And we think through U.S. strength, we have U.S. prosperity. And as you know, with the focus on the defense industrial base and what the United States needs to do vis-a-vis great power competition with China, increasingly the focus has become on our manufacturing capability and whether or not domestically and with allies and partners across the world, we have the manufacturing base necessary to advance U.S. primacy into the next century. And just give us a sense of the makeup. It was a pretty big committee. You had members of Congress. You also had a few, to use a cliche, titans of industry on there also. Well, we always like to mix up in these task forces people from the public sector, private sector, elected officials, experts. Here, we were quite fortunate to have the former CEO and chairman of Lockheed Martin, Marilyn Houston, and the current CEO of Bridgewater Associates, uh, I think the largest hedge fund uh, in the country, David McCormick, who also previously served as an undersecretary for Treasury and International Affairs. So they, they led up the effort. And you're right, we had two Republicans and two Democrats and uh, House representatives on the task force as well as a number of leaders from the defense industrial base, Representative Bob Simmons, former staff director from the House Armed Services Committee now with Boeing, as well as Dan Bryan, senior vice president from Walmart. So really trying to get a nice array of people with different perspectives and experiences relevant to thinking about how do we advance U.S. competitiveness in manufacturing. And you mentioned the chairman of a hedge fund, because a hedge fund can be a source of investment in manufacturing. On the other hand, manufacturing requires some heavy investment in capital to be able to be efficient and so forth. Hedge funds tend to look at how can we cut costs, but to boost competitiveness in manufacturing, we have to do some heavy investment in real hard cash in hard equipment. So what does the task force say about the need for capital to be able to get to more competitiveness in manufacturing. Glad you pointed to that one. It's a key area. We need capital and intensive capital, particularly in high-end manufacturing, things like semiconductors, which I know you focused on. And the private sector alone may not drive the capital to those areas we need for manufacturing, particularly manufacturing in the United States. So someone with Dave McCormick's background understands capital investment flows was critical here in, in trying to figure out what policy recommendation, what balance between public-private partnership might realize increased capital flow. The key finding, though, was the market alone will not yield the result that we need for our national security, our national defense. And therefore, we have to come up with new public-private instruments, investment tools, so industry and manufacturing can realize the capital it needs to compete globally. And as you know, Tom, China, but not just China, other countries around the world, friends and allies as well, give huge subsidies to their manufacturing sectors so they can compete. So it's not exactly a level playing field around the world. I'm not looking for industrial policy. Certainly the Reagan Institute is not driving industrial policy where government gives the entire answer to this problem, but it needs to be something along the lines of public-private partnership 
and reducing barriers. There you have a very kind of conservative way of talking to allow for capital flows to come in and for investors to get return on investment. Traditionally, in U.S. history, it was only during wartime that that kind of government push to industry was needed because of the demand of a wartime. But if you look at the semiconductor industry, it was invented here. The transistor was invented here, the IC. And at one time, Silicon Valley was actually all about silicon. Now it's all about software. So what changed? We lost the semiconductor industry. Now we're clamoring to get it back. And now we have, you know, Samsung is about to invest in Texas and so forth. What's changed such that the United States needs the government now to help with this capital formation for an industry like chips? Yeah, and I want to emphasize, it's not government alone, but government needs to be focused on it. There's legislation pending before the U.S. Congress, the CHIPS Act, so bipartisan support. There's recognition that we need to do something as a country to maintain our edge with semiconductors. To your question, the United States is leading in semiconductor design, but the messy, difficult, capital-intensive, perhaps low yield in terms of investment work happens outside the United States, in places like Taiwan, in places like Korea, as you mentioned, and of course, China. The reality is, as manufacturing goes overseas, it creates vulnerabilities for us in the United States. You don't have to look beyond the pandemic, where we saw what happens when a supply chain that's reliant. I mean, we're seeing it right now, but it was captured uh, during the beginning of the COVID virus. When we rely on overseas supply chain and that gets holed up, the United States and our people here suffer. They can't get the goods they need. You see that with your phones, you see it with the cars today. Ultimately, we could see it with the weapon systems and other types of capabilities that we need for our military. But more broadly, we need to recognize that having this distance between the R&D and the know-how and the manufacturing is not good for us in terms of security, and it actually is not good for our economy either. We're speaking with Roger Zackheim. He's director of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. I guess people that think semiconductor manufacturing is dirty never saw a steel mill. But (laughs) besides that, the task force also looked at the workforce and the need to develop, again, semiconductors, to continue with that example, is a highly skilled manufacturing job. And people that do that are not just, you know, pounding molten metal with hammers. So what does the task force say about the workforce in the United States? And that's something repeated administrations have stressed. Ultimately, you can bring in the capital that's required to create 21st century high-end manufacturing. But if we don't have the people who can do it, it's not going to mean much or anything at all. And the idea that somehow if you build it, people will come is not accurate. We need to go ahead and have the training, have credential workers for high-demand trades repurposing educational grants like Pell Grants, which is something we focused on in a recommendation to allow high school graduates to earn credential skills. These are some of the things that we need so the U.S. can commit to fund 500,000 new graduates to take on not just the high-end manufacturing that we've discussed, but also some of the basic manufacturing, high-pay, actually, jobs that we need for our defense industrial base as well. So there's a huge demand on workforce so we can you know, sustain the global leadership that we need. And there's also a need for immigration policy as well to get there from a national security standpoint. The Reagan Institute led a task force in the past, which talked about national security visa uh, to get certain skilled workers. That's come up again in this work as well. And it, and it tends to get bipartisan support too. All right. And I want to move on to one other issue that came to light during the recent pandemic, and that is the Defense Production Act. You're calling for modernization of that as well. What's the prescription here? Well, you're right. The Defense Production Act was critical during COVID from 
PPE and masks and generators. We needed all of that and we couldn't get it without the government using this tool really from the 20th century, you know, Korean War and developed since that in our view isn't scaled up for the 21st century. It's done well, but it could do more. And from the perspective of our task force, our co-chairs, Dave McCormick and Marilyn Houston, members of Congress really agree with this as well, that we need to get these manufacturing facilities working and, and in a time frame that matters, not decades out, but years out, we need targeted visa approvals for STEM talent, the financing we discussed about, having it targeted and going to projects, fast tracking federal permits, and even workforce training. These are all the pieces that we think a Defense Production Act should be able to advance. Currently, the types of things I've just discussed are beyond the purview, outside the purview of the Defense Production Act. We think it's such an effective tool and a proven tool as recently as the past couple of years that that should be expanded to get at a lot of the issues we're discussing here. And do you get any sense that there's bipartisan support for that idea? Well, certainly our task force is reflective of that bipartisanship. We have Congressman McCall from Texas, Congressman Gallagher from Wisconsin, both Republicans. And we have Congresswoman Houlihan as well. So from, from Pennsylvania, Democrats, we have members who are supportive of this. I think at the end of the day, this is a bipartisan issue. This is about American strength, investing in America and recognizing we're not doing this crony capitalism to advance one particular narrow interest. This is a national interest that complements both economic prosperity, economic strength, and our national defense. Roger Zakheim is director of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. Thanks so much for joining me. Tom, thanks for having me here. We'll post this interview along with a link to that report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the president and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union, where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy um, with uh, six actual actual, uh, afloat commands. Uh, The first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm, I'm currently retired and enjoying life. And um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style? And how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates 
uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them and find out what they're doing and where, what you can do to help them. Uh, I, we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it. Um, From Sea to the C-Suite, fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day and I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, and I, I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention and it was, it was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, absolutely. Um, what I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I, I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federal's organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the, the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And, and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and... Um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? 
Yes, when I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they gonna say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment and it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan who was the perfect, perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon. Uh, and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons in, in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is, is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally and, agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler, and to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast. We'll see you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, Think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.